0: word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. All right, now before we begin this morning, kids, you've got your kids' bulletin, I hope, and you just heard that passage read, and now we're going to be uh, teaching from it. Uh, Kids, you have got a space there uh, to draw John's vision in Revelation 21 and 22 that we just read. i actually never seen anybody make a good drawing of what's in this passage. So, uh, kids, maybe uh, do the best you can with that. I'd love to see what you come up with afterwards. (laughs) I look forward to that. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word, that you would speak to us, that your word would thunder forth with power and with grace Father, we pray that we would see our identity, who we are in Christ Jesus as your people, that we might see the great privileges and powers we have as your church through your word. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I imagine most everyone has a dream house, some vision of some kind of house that you think would be the absolute ideal place to live. Maybe it's some kind of massive mansion with a huge kitchen and really big closets. Uh, Maybe it's a house with a pool uh, with a big garage or a workshop. Uh, Maybe it's a house that's tucked away uh, in the mountains or alongside a river. Well, you know what? God has a dream house, too. Certainly, God fills the whole cosmos with his presence. In a sense, you could think of the whole universe as God's house. But it's also really clear God has chosen to make for himself a very special dwelling, a very special dwelling place, a masterpiece, his dream house, a home in which God will live for all eternity. In all of creation, there's one special place where God resides, a place God calls home. And that place is the church. Now, I don't mean a church building. I mean the church, the people. God's house is a house made out of people. It's a people house. Uh, I want to suggest to you today that what John sees in Revelation 21 and 22 is indeed God's dream house. This is where God dwells. This is the house God builds for himself. Think about that passage we just read. What did John see descending down out of heaven? It's described in several different ways. I don't think John ever got that memo that you're not supposed to mix metaphors, because that's all he's done here is mix a bunch of metaphors together. But think about some of the ways this is described. Whatever it is, John sees descending down out of heaven. In verse 2, it's called the holy city. So that's one clue. In verse 2, we're told it is prepared as a bride. That is another clue. Verse 10, it seems to come to rest on a mountain. In verse 16, it's shaped like a cube. Those are further clues. Verse 14, it has foundation stones, 12 in all, with the names of the 12 apostles. Uh, we find it's got both walls and gates. Verse 22, we find it is a temple. And then in chapter 22, we find it's also a garden with a river flowing through it, a river flowing out of it, with trees planted on either side. All of those are clues to what's being described here. That should be enough clues for us to figure it out. These are different images that give us different perspectives on the same reality. John sees a temple city bride garden that is cube-shaped, resting on a mountain. Now, what you need to remember is that throughout Scripture, architectural structures are used to represent people. Architectural structures are used to represent the people of God. They're used to represent the church, and so it is here. In the old covenant era, God's people built a temple as a house for God. And when you read about it in the book of Exodus, the tabernacle there, and then later in history it's the temple, you see God moving in. The Shekinah glory of God moves in. But what do we find when we read in the New Testament? We find that in the New Covenant, that temple was symbolic. And one of the ways that temple building was symbolic is it pointed ahead to the people of God. The real temple is the people, the church. The church is now God's temple. Again and again, the New Testament tells us this. Think about what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 really helpful passage, actually, for understanding Revelation 21 and 22. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, you are being built, that's a construction term, you are being built built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. That's just like Revelation 21's description of the foundation of the city or the temple. You're being built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple. That's the same language John uses in the Lord in whom you're being built built together for a dwelling place or a house for God in the Spirit. Now, how much more obvious could it be that John and Paul are talking about the same thing? What Paul describes in his own way is exactly what corresponds exactly to what John sees in his vision. Paul's description and John's vision match. They go together. We can confirm this if we keep going. Uh, John tells us that this uh, temple is also the bride. Well, go to Ephesians 5. Everybody knows that the church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the husband. He's the bridegroom. And the church is his bride. Well, we're told here what John sees descending out of heaven is prepared as a bride. Uh, He calls this temple bride a holy city. It's another description John gives it, a holy city. Well, the church is called the holy city several places in Scripture, in Galatians chapter 4 and in Hebrews chapter 12. This is really clear. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 also makes the mountain connection. In fact, there are a number of connections in Hebrews chapter 12 that, again, really help us understand what's being described in Revelation 21 and 22, how this new Jerusalem, this holy city of the church comes to rest on a symbolic mountain. Hebrews 12 puts it this way. Hebrews 12 is describing what happens when we come together as the church. What happens when we come together for worship? And this is how Hebrews 12 describes it. It says, you have come to Mount Zion. See, there's the mountain. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of Of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Coming to church, we could say, is really a mountaintop experience. Coming together as the church means that we are resting on top of Mount Zion. It means in some sense we have entered into heaven with this innumerable company of angels, the, the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That firstborn, of course, is the Lord Jesus. We're going to look more at this vision next week. And we're going to see what it teaches us, especially about the church's mission, uh, our mission to the nations, our service to the nations. But I want to call your attention to something else here this morning. And this is what I think is, is, is actually most central. It is the church's worship. John's vision as he sees the church, that's what this vision is all about, the church. John's vision of the church shows us the central act of the church is coming together to worship God. Think about this. Continue to unpack these images John gives us. He describes the church as a cube. It's got the same height, width, and and, and length. Why does he describe the church as a cube? Why would God's dream house be a cube? I bet your dream house is not a cube. Why would God's dream house be a cube? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament scriptures, which are always the key to a vision like this, you find that the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant tabernacle and temple was cube-shaped. That was the place where God dwelt, the most holy place. And now, in John's vision, the church is cubical. Just like the most holy place. What does it mean? It means the church has been made into the holy of holies of the universe. The church is the most holy place of the universe. Verse 11 goes on to say she has the glory of God. The Shekinah glory that once dwelt in the most holy place of the tabernacle and the temple now dwells in the midst of God's people. God's glory dwells in our midst when we come together for worship. But this tells us the church is not only the place where God dwells, it also tells us what the church does, what it means to be the church, not just our identity, but our activity. What is the most central function of the church? Well, think about this. What took place in the most holy place? The most holy place in The Old Covenant was the heart of the temple, which was the place of worship for Israel. So what is the church? The church is created and called to worship God. It's interesting to take another passage that again helps us unlock this one. In 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2 describes the church as a temple. And then goes on to say this. It, it describes the people of God saying, we are a holy priesthood who offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be the church? It means we are the people who gather to worship the living God. We are the people who come together to offer up sacrifices of praise and thanks as priests serving in God's house, in his temple, in his most holy place. In fact, the church is not only described here as a cube, like the most holy place, you keep reading into chapter 22, you find it is described as a garden with a river running through it and out from it, and trees growing on either side of the river, bearing their fruit each month. In fact, this is the tree of life. That one tree of life you started with in Genesis has now become a whole grove of trees of life. Think about what we've got here. Such a a beautiful picture. God's dream house is a mountaintop and a riverfront property. It's a city, but it's also a garden, as if the city is in the garden. The city and garden have been combined. It's really the best of everything. But if God's house is a garden, if that's one of the ways we can describe God's house, if it's a garden with a river and with the tree of life, what does that tell you? What does this recall? Of course, it recalls the Garden of Eden, the original sanctuary. The Garden of Eden was the original meeting place between God and man. The tree of life was there. That was the first sacramental food that God offered. And of course, there was a river flowing out from the Garden of Eden. The church is like a new Eden, full of life, full of beauty, full of glory, river flowing out. The tree of life is found here. If the church is the Garden of Eden, think about this. If the church is a new Eden, everything Adam and Eve were supposed to get in Eden, we now get in the church. Eden was to be a a place of fellowship. Again, God was with Adam and Eve everywhere they went. But he was with them in a special way. He bonded with them in a special way. He gave himself to them in a special way in the Garden of Eden. That's where they went for fellowship with God. And John his vision is showing us now that's the church. The church is the new and true Eden. This is the place of communion with God, where we meet with God and enjoy his gifts. This is where the tree of life is found. This is where the river of the water of life is. See, what does it mean to be the church? It means we are the people who confess our sin to God and who hear His promise of cleansing and forgiveness. We are the people who sing His praises, who cry out to Him in prayer for our needs and for the needs of the world, knowing that He hears us and that He acts in response. We are the people who hear God's Word with eager and attentive hearts, ready to believe and obey whatever He says to us. And we are the people who feast at his table. We feast upon Jesus, his body and his blood. He is our tree of life. He is our Passover lamb. He is our manna from heaven. That's the heart and the essence of the church. That's what it means to be the people of God. This is what John is showing us in his vision. Our gathering is God's most holy place. His glory is here in our midst. When we come together, we form a temple for God, a holy of holies for God to dwell in, for God's glory to be manifest. The most important thing the church can do for the world is be the church, to serve as priests in God's presence. See, what does it mean to be the church? It means when we come together, we are God's temple. We constitute God's temple, God's holy of holies, God's garden city. We are are on God's holy mountain. This is the place of life and wisdom and glory, the place where God's gifts are most concentrated, the place where God has made these gifts available to us. To be the church is to be a liturgical community, a people who together, who corporately offer up a sacrifice of praise of people who perform the liturgy in God's presence and who receive God's gifts through the liturgy and who change the world through our liturgical actions. That's what it means to be the church. Look at this vision again. again, just consider one aspect of it. obviously we can't talk about every dimension of this, but again, what is it that flows out of the temple city? Well, chapter 22, verse 1, tells us the river of the water of life. It flows out from God's throne, which is the most holy place. It flows out through the church. Now, do you see what this means? This means when we come together, what is God doing in our midst? God's renewing us and refreshing us when we gather. The waters of life flow here. But as God renews us through our gathering, he also works to renew the world. That water we have received, that water that we drink up when we come together on the Lord's Day, that water that quenches our thirst, that water now flows out from us. It flows out through us into the world. This is what Jesus said in John 7 about the Holy Spirit. He described the Holy Spirit as this living water, and said rivers of living water will flow out from each one of us as his disciples. We've been given the spirit, the spirit that is this water of life, this river of life. You've got this beautiful picture here of what church is all about. John is describing the church in all her many facets, including this river of life flowing out from this gallery. See, this right here, this kind of gathering of God's people, this is the center of the world. Wherever God's people gather, there is the center. Wherever God's people gather, that is the center of the world. You need to understand this is your greatest privilege, not just as a Christian, but as a human being. This is your greatest privilege that we get to enter God's house, his holy of holies. In fact, we become God's house. We become his most holy place. God's glory is with us. God's glory is within us. Of course, it's always true. God's always with us. But again, especially here when we come together to worship, this is your greatest privilege this is where your greatest privilege is found but this is also where your greatest power is found because in the church god is at work in unique ways the church's liturgy has formative power power to form us it Forms us into disciples it trains us in the virtues of the kingdom the culture of the church The culture of the kingdom is formed more here in worship than anywhere else So just to give you an example Christian economics begins here a Christian economics begins here when we offer our tithe to the Lord and share at his table Revelation describes the the nations bringing their treasure into the kingdom of God. What do you think the offertory is all about? This is how God brings the treasure of the nations into his kingdom, through our tithes and offerings. Christian economics starts here. A Christian politics starts here. A Christian politics starts here in worship. It begins here as we declare our allegiance to Jesus And we proclaim him as king of kings and lord of lords. You know, uh, politics does not so much change the culture as it reflects the culture. You know, it is an election year. And everyone, therefore, is obsessed with politics. But politics is really downstream from culture. We, we tend to overvalue politics. Most of our culture's problems have almost nothing to do with who is in the White House. Not saying we shouldn't care about that. Not saying we shouldn't be politically active. Those are great things. But you're not going to solve our culture's greatest problems by electing this candidate or that candidate. That's how people tend to look at it. But that's a secular, or I even say atheistic, way of looking at the world. Most of our culture's problems cannot be solved by electing the right official. It doesn't really matter that much who is in the White House. You can't affect real, lasting change through political means. But you know what? Here, in the most holy place, we can change the culture. We can at least begin to change the culture This is the place of power. Joseph Stalin once uh, mockingly uh, asked, he asked in a very dismissive kind of way, how many divisions does the Pope have? Kind of sneering at the Pope that the Pope doesn't really have power anything like what Stalin himself has. Military power is the only kind of power that statists can imagine. The power of coercion, uh, the power of violence. The power that comes out of the end of a loaded gun, but the church wields a very different kind of power. And indeed, I would say it's a much greater kind of power, and I can prove that to you. If you had to choose, which would you rather have? Would you rather have access to the Oval Office or to the Holy of Holies? Would you rather have the President of the United States of America listen to you and hear your petitions? Or would you rather have the Lord Jesus Christ listen to you and hear your petitions? Which would you choose? The President's Oval Office or God's Throne Room? Where do you think the greater power is found? We may not have access to the Oval Office. We may never have access to the Oval Office. But we have continual access to the most holy place. The president may not listen to us, but the Lord Jesus Christ will. And all authority in heaven and on earth, including authority over these United States, has been given to Jesus. President Trump's up for re-election this year. King Jesus is not. And we must remember that. The world sees the church as powerless. The world sees worship as, irrele- as irrelevant. When actually, just the opposite is true. I find it so interesting that in so many states, thankfully not ours, but in so many states, churches were quickly shut down. In some cases, I think you can say now, being singled out to some degree and being shut down. And being relegated to the non-essential category, the dreaded non-essential category. But at some level, I think this is happening because many of our leaders who do not fear God know They know at some level, this is where power is found. And if we can keep the people from worshiping, if we can keep them from gathering, we can break that power. We must not let it happen. It's interesting. Every time in history, God has brought great reformation and renewal to a nation or to a culture. It has started with faithful worship. God always starts his reformation and renewal projects with faithful worship. Because the reality, while the church is the most holy place, it's not as if all God's only concerned about the church. God is concerned with all of life, all of culture, obviously. And God wants to see all of culture renewed and, and reformed according to his word. But any time God brings reformation and renewal to a culture, where does it start? It always starts with the church. It always starts with faithful worship. And that includes teaching the Bible, praying corporately, and singing psalms and hymns together. Those are the things. Those are the key ingredients in cultural transformation. That's just how God works in the world. And you see it again and again throughout history. You go back to the early church. They were completely powerless, had no political clout whatsoever, and they didn't live in a republic where you could vote for your leaders. They were completely locked out of the places of earthly political power. And yet those early Christians overcame the Roman Empire. They brought the Roman Empire to its knees. How did they do it? How did they do it? The early Christians worshipped their way to victory. They worshipped their way to victory over the Roman Empire. Jump ahead in history to the Reformation in the 16th century. The Reformation started with the reform of worship. We tend to focus so much on the doctrinal issues, and of course those are incredibly important. But it really started as a reformation in the sanctuary. The reform of worship. Preaching, teaching, getting the people participating in worship, restoring the Lord's Supper to the people regularly. Think about in our own nation's history. It was the preaching of God's word and worship that produced the Great Awakening, which in turn produced the American Revolution. Our nation exists, and and we have the Christian heritage we have because of the Great Awakening. And how did it start? It started with a Bible and a hymn book. A Bible and a Psalter. That's where it started. Or think about how the prayers and singing of the saints in Eastern Europe brought down the communist bloc. That's a story that's not often told, but it's true. Look it up. It was the prayers of God's people that brought down communism in the Soviet Union, and of course once the dominoes started to fall, in all of Eastern Europe. So again, the world sees us as powerless. The world sees worship as irrelevant. Nothing could be further from the truth. What did John see coming down out of heaven? He saw us. He saw us this morning. He saw the worshiping church. What did John see coming down out of heaven? He might as well have seen Trinity Presbyterian Church gathered on this very Lord's Day. Because all those things he describes, that whole kaleidoscope of images, that's what's happening right here with us in our midst. We are the bride. We are the city. We are the temple. We are the most holy place. This is who we are. God's dream house. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.